The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles now, if you would please, and open them to the book of Revelation, chapter 1, 21 rather. I'm always amazed at the way that the Lord works in His divine providence. If you remember back at uh, Christmas time, we were in the middle of a study about Satan, and I wondered how would it be possible to preach a Christmas message when we're dealing with Satan. And the Lord opened up a way that we could do that by putting us into the uh, right moment of Satan's downfall in the story of how the Lord will defeat him. And with that comes the millennial kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when the wise men came to visit Jesus at his birth, they were looking for a king and looking for a king that they could worship. And Jesus is that king. And we were right at the place in that study where Jesus appears in his millennial kingdom and thus fulfills the Bible prophecy of his kingship. Well, the Lord has also opened up a way in his providence for us to talk about the resurrection in the midst of this series about heaven. And that's because we've reached a point where uh, this season of the resurrection fits very well into the place that we are in the scriptures and talking about what heaven means to us and how that we're going to get there. Uh, During the Passion Week, Christ died. On Sunday morning, he arose from the dead. He conquered death. And because he lives, our hope of heaven is real. Without the resurrection of Christ, uh, there is no hope. And as I preach this message this morning, I want you to keep that in mind, that heaven is not possible if Jesus is still in the tomb. He came out. He is alive. And he is eternally alive. And because that he lives, we shall also live. Today, I'd like to talk to you about dying. I know that's a bad way to start a Sunday morning. Most of us really don't want to think about dying. But because of Christ and his resurrection, uh, you really don't have to worry too much about this today. This sermon is not going to hurt. If you believe in Christ, if you know that he saved you from hell, if you know your soul is saved, you're trusting him to take you to heaven, and your soul is in his care, then you don't really need to worry too much about dying. But it seems that every time that we open up the scriptures to talk about heaven, death is on our minds because you think that I'm about to preach a funeral sermon. And we certainly don't want these to turn into funeral sermons, and that's the most often time that people talk about death or talk about uh, heaven is when there is a funeral. And... Uh, Heaven becomes the panacea to heal broken hearts. And so preachers want to talk about heaven to fill people's minds with good thoughts about those that have died. But other than that, heaven really doesn't mean a whole lot to us. Well, the authors of Scripture didn't think that way. Heaven to them was exciting because it was the consolation for a life that was lived in persecution. It was consolation for the constant threat of death that they were always living under. Now maybe what we, and what we will do is read about Paul's trials in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 to understand why that the Apostle Paul thought that leaving this life, that just dying, that that would be such a great thing. Imagine if this is what you faced every day. Of the Jews five times, 
Received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings often. In perils of waters. In perils of robbers. In perils by mine own countrymen. In perils by the heathen. In perils in the city. In perils in the wilderness. In perils in the sea. In perils among false brethren. In weariness and painfulness. In watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And then in the 1 Corinthians 15, in the resurrection chapter, Paul indicated that at one time he was thrown to the lions at Ephesus. And that's the kind of thing that Christians went through in the early centuries, and it's multiplied hundreds of times over. And it's not difficult then to understand why that many of the New Testament epistles include in them the hope of heaven. And because that was the reward for the patient endurance of trials that these early Christians faced. In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, there it says, Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. And then in Hebrews chapter 6, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. Now, as we sit here this morning as American Christians, it's hard for us to relate to that, to that suffering that early Christians went through. And since that's not our experience, the consolation of heaven really is not very much on our minds. It's not as near and dear to our hearts as it was to them. And so when it comes time to talk about death, we dread death. There, there's no pleasant experience, we think, in death. And so those thoughts are far from us. We don't long for it, not as early Christians did. And that's why when you start a Sunday morning sermon talking about death, that that might not be very appealing to you. But I hope that I can change your perspective on this somewhat today because I don't want you to think about these sermons on heaven as being sad funeral sermons. The saying is that nobody gets out of this world alive. And that is certainly true. If you're going to go to heaven, you will have to die. Unless Jesus comes first, you will have to experience death because none of us are going to get out of the world alive. But beware of this, that the death for a Christian is only a split second of sleep. And that's how the Bible describes death for a real believer in Christ. It is so brief that it's just like closing your eyes and going to sleep and then immediately waking up in the presence of God, in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, and there you see God. And there's no need to dread death because of that. As Paul told the Thessalonians at the return of Christ, about the return of Christ, he said, I want to tell you about this so that you don't sorrow as those who have no hope. Now, we have hope. And we have hope because Jesus is alive. Now, if you'll look at our text today, you can see the opportunity of previewing heaven through the eyes of the Apostle John. And he had a real experience of heaven. And this is much unlike the fantasy books that you read of 
people who claim that they've died, they've gone to heaven, then they return to tell us what it's like. No, this is the real stuff, what we're reading here. This is what Jesus says that heaven is. And you don't have to pay nineteen ninety-five for a poorly written book to find out about it. If you need one, we'll give you a Bible today. And there you can read exactly what God says, the one who created heaven. You can find out what it's all about. Well, this is what John saw when God showed him heaven. Verse number 1 of Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Now our scripture reading stops today at verse number 7, but it does go on. I encourage you to read on. We're going to study that a little bit later. And we'll have opportunity to talk about all these different things that are in heaven. But today our concentration is going to be on verses 6 and 7. And what I want to talk to you about is the benefits of heaven, or more particularly today, the benefits of the resurrection. And the resurrection of Christ secures for us some wonderful benefits for those who have died in Christ or will die in Christ, those who know him as Savior. There are these great benefits that we have in heaven. The first of those is found in verse number 4. And uh, in the past weeks, I've tried to make you aware of this, that the chief benefit of heaven is actually Jesus Christ himself. If we knew only this, that we're going to go to heaven to see Jesus Christ, that, that would be more than enough to make us happy in the place that God has prepared for us. But the Bible gives us so much more, and God has promised so much more uh, about what heaven is going to be. God knows what people think about. And so he whets the appetite for heaven by telling us about the wonderful benefits of our heavenly home. Now, our first thought takes us back to what we looked at last week and the joy of knowing that all of our cares are gone. When we get to heaven, all cares are gone. And here, through a series of negative statements, God tells us what heaven will not be like. We, we can understand heaven better if we compare it to things that we already know in this life. And so we learn in this fourth verse that in heaven, we're done with all the sorrows that we have in this life. The scripture says that from the day that we are born, we experience sorrow. A baby enters into the world crying, and he doesn't even yet know why he's crying. And I, and I really don't want to sound too depressing today, but each of us knows that we are not entirely done with sorrows. We experience troubles. At some point, tragedy strikes. Troubles come into all of our lives. We're never done with it. And when we've made peace with some trouble that we've just had, we turn around and there is another one just waiting for us. 
Our lives are like a churning sea. That's what the Word of God says. It's, there's always trouble there. Our lives are always stirred up with trouble. And you just think about that. How many days do you go without problems? How many days do you go without actually worrying about anything? That you have no trouble at all? Well, we know. We don't have many days like that. And when things are going well, we, we, we just think that good days are, are just another day, an evil omen waiting for the next shoe to drop. That there's another trouble that's right around the corner. But heaven is a place where we have no troubles. There is no reason for crying in heaven. There are no sorrows there. There are no problems there. And so... We look at this and we long for this, that when we get to heaven, we will be able to live in complete optimism. Now, some of you are pessimistic people. I mean, would you admit that? I mean, you live in pessimism. You always think that something's going to go wrong, and you can't imagine that you would ever live in a place where nothing ever goes wrong. But that's exactly what heaven is. This is a place where nothing goes wrong. Pessimist, you'll get to heaven, but your attitude's going to be changed you'll know that nothing is ever going to go wrong. Well, John goes on to say that not only that, not only things not go wrong, but there's not going to be any death when we get to heaven. You only have to go through death once. One time for a Christian, that's the first and the last time. And then at the resurrection, your body is going to be raised and joined with your spirit. It will be an immortal, an immortal, incorruptible body. Death is corruption, and since in heaven there is no corruption, there can't be any death. Paul said in 1 Corinthians that death is swallowed up in the victory of Christ's resurrection. Because he lives eternally, we shall also live eternally. So this mortal, as Paul described it in 1 Corinthians 15, puts on immortality. And that means there are no cemeteries in heaven. No undertakers are in heaven because there is no death. And the reason that all these sorrows and pains and death is gone is because of what's stated in chapter 22 in verse number 3, where it says there will be no curse. The curse has been lifted. So we don't have to worry about the curse any longer. Heaven is the home of the holy God who permits no sin. Christ's death satisfied God for our sins. And all believers who trust in Christ, they enter into heaven redeemed and purified and washed white in the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, as I pray every morning, this is one of my regular petitions to God, that I say, come, Lord Jesus, come and deliver me from the curse. And I want to be delivered so that my service to Him will no longer be imperfect. And that's what heaven is, a place where the curse is lifted, where all is perfect, and we live in the perfection of godly holiness. Well, now I'd like for us to move on to verses 6 and 7 and the benefits of our home in heaven. In verse 6, and he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Now the second point that I'd like you to look at today, this is what's going to happen for those who are believers. Conquerors will be rewarded. Heaven is a place where God's people are going to be rewarded. And he said unto me, it is done. That's very similar to what Christ said on the cross. As he was about to release his spirit and death, he said, it is finished. Or he said, it's done. 
And when he spoke those words, that was a view towards the final salvation of man, that Jesus had accomplished everything the Father gave him to do in dying for our sins and paying for our sins. He made us worthy to enter into God's presence. Now, contrary to what's preached in most churches today on Easter Sunday, there is no such thing as security in heaven without belief in Christ. There is no heaven for people that are very sincere, and they have sincere religious beliefs, but they don't know anything about Christ. Oh, the Scriptures teach us that you must know Christ in order to be in heaven. Most people believe that all that you have to do is to die. You go to heaven if you die. So it's never common that you would hear in a funeral message a preacher say, well, you know something, I'm sure that this person in this casket showed no evidence of being a Christian, so he's in hell. You're not going to hear that preached in a funeral sermon, although that may be most assuredly true. If a person never shows any evidence of being a Christian, then that's the other place that they go. But we're not going to say that in a funeral message. I don't even do that. I don't do that, and the reason that I don't is because I can't make a final determination about whether someone is in heaven or hell. But you're not going to hear me say that a person who has not put his faith in Christ and showed no evidence that he was a Christian, you won't hear me say, I'm sure this person's going to be in heaven. I'll stay away from that subject. And I'm not going to tell you that all religions have core common beliefs, and because we have core common beliefs, that's going to get us to heaven. I'm not going to tell people that, because the Bible doesn't say that. There is a qualification for heaven, and that qualification is Jesus Christ. You must believe in Christ. It's not enough to have people go to your funeral and applaud you for the good life that you lived and talk about how good that your life was because heaven is only for people who actually realize how bad they are. Did you know that? Heaven is not people for people who talk about how good they are. It's for people who have realized how bad they actually are. Jesus said, and this is in the Sermon on the Mount, his most famous sermon, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit does not mean that they've taken a vow of poverty in order to help people. It doesn't mean that they're kind and generous and they've given themselves to help other people. Those are good things and you ought to do that. But poor in spirit, when Jesus says that, he means those who realize that they are spiritually bankrupt. They are poor in spirit, meaning there's nothing good in them. And they know that the best that they do falls far short of God's expectations. And so the poor in spirit are those who realize that spiritual bankruptcy. And they're ones who, after doing everything that they can do, realize they've done nothing but what has been commanded by God. And they haven't done it very well. At best, they're unprofitable servants. Only those who realize it's Christ's righteousness. It is Christ who saves, not what we do. Those are the ones that have taken that step towards heaven. There is no amount of applause for a person's good life that amounts to anything. If he did not know Christ, he will not be in heaven. Heaven is a place for those who have been redeemed by Christ's blood. Jesus accomplished redemption on the cross, and he finished the work that the Father gave him to do. Now, it's been a long, long time since Jesus said those words, it is finished. The cross is actually the qualification for what we read here in the sixth verse of Revelation 21. It is done. And the literal meaning of that is it has become or it is reality. 
In other words, there are no more promises. At this point, you don't need more promises from God because there isn't anything to be fulfilled. All the promises have been fulfilled and found their reality in God's redemption. Some weeks ago, I told you there is no hope in heaven. There isn't any need for hope in heaven because all hope is realized. There's nothing else to look forward to because Christ has fulfilled everything when you get to heaven. That's the promise of God's reality. Well, the next words are very significant because this gives us the identity of the one who speaks to John. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Now, let's turn to the first chapter of Revelation for just a minute, and here we get some clarification about who is actually saying these words. Verse number 8 in Revelation chapter 1, Revelation 1 verse 8, I am... Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. And then if you look down in the 18th verse, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I live forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Now doesn't that sound just like an Easter message? I am the one that was dead, I was the one that, or I was alive, and then I was dead, and now I am alive forevermore. So, who could the Alpha and Omega be? Who is this Lord Almighty? Well, John must be speaking to the ever living Christ. He's God, and He arose. This was 60 years after the cross, 60 years after the resurrection. And it looks forward to the day when this world ends and then heaven is opened up. And when heaven is opened, who is there? This one that John speaks to, the one who is alive. And that one who is alive is Jesus Christ. The one who was dead and now is alive. He arose from the grave. And so heaven opened up and John spoke with the Savior. And that Savior is never absent from heaven. And when you get to heaven, your first sight will be that of the Holy God. Jesus Christ, and of His Father, the Holy God is who you will see when you get into heaven. The one who was dead and is alive. And how different that is from the books that you read on near-death experiences. And you know they can't be true, because rarely do you ever see any of them that start talking about they were overwhelmed with God's glory. Where do you read that? They talk about things that they saw, people they saw, and stuff like that, but they never speak of the overwhelming glory of God, which is what you will see first thing when you wake up in heaven. That's the brightness of God's glory. Now notice how this sentence begins. I am Alpha and Omega. I am. In the Old Testament, God spoke to Moses in the burning bush, And he told him his name. Do you know what the name of God is? This is it. I am. That's God's name. That means that he is the eternally existent God. That he has no beginning, no ending. He is. I am. That's present tense. That tells us that God is the present. I am. He is forever now. And did you know many times that's what Jesus said in the Scriptures? He said, I am, and his literal wording is ego I me. I, I myself am. 
And that identifies him as the one true living God. And so when you get to heaven, that's the God that you'll see. You'll not see an imaginary God of Muslims or an imaginary God of Buddhists and of Hindus and of countless others. He is the only God who is in heaven. And he's the one who said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And he says, Before anything was, I am And so can you see there can't be anybody in heaven without him. To deny him, to disbelieve him, is to reject the only God that is in heaven. As the psalmist said, whom have I in heaven but thee? Revelation 21 identifies Jesus as the eternal God. Listen to God's words to the prophet Isaiah. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God. And there is none else. I am God. And that's why we say there is no other way to heaven. Some resist it. Some say that all religions are equal. You just need to be sincere. You need to be a devout follower of whatever, whatever it is you believe, and you'll be in heaven. But no Christian could ever believe that. That's not a Christian doctrine. Jesus Christ is God. There is no God in heaven but him. He, had di- he died, he arose, and he holds the key of life and death, of heaven and of hell. So Christianity, by definition, cannot be tolerant of any other religion. All has to be excluded because Jesus is the only God who is in heaven. Is there any reason for us to be more tolerant than God? Are our opinions going to admit anyone into heaven? Our opinions don't matter. What matters is what did God say? And He is the only God. Our God is the only God that's in heaven. 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul said, It is a faithful saying, For if we be dead with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will deny us. Now notice verse number 7 of our text. God in heaven says this, He that overcometh, shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Now there he tells us that the one who overcomes, the one who overcomes will inherit all things. This is the same thing as saying that heaven is for them. You want to qualify who's going to heaven? These are the ones, the ones who overcome, and they are called sons of God. And the reward for overcoming is this home in heaven. In 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5, it says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. And then in verse 11, And this is the record that God hath given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Let's take a look at this word, overcometh, in verse number 7. I think you'll find it to be an interesting word, because you might not know that this Greek word, translated as overcome, is on your clothing, it's on your shoes, it's on your hats, it's on your sports equipment. It's the swoosh, the Nike emblem. That's the word Nike. It comes from the great word, the Greek word nakaho, which means conqueror. So who is a conqueror? 
Well, before I read this, keep in mind that Christ said, He that overcometh, or he that conquers, shall inherit all things. So who are these people? Romans chapter 8, verse 35, for, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Conquerors are those who believe in Christ. And Paul said that we are more than conquerors. There the word is hooper, nikao, or as we would say, super Nike, hyper Nike, super conquerors. That's what he's saying. So who are they? Well, they're not the godless of the world. They're not people that live their lives going their own direction and doing their own thing. These are not people who sing the song, and now the end is come, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway, but more, much more than this, I did it my way. Friend, that is a recipe for hell. Those who reach heaven are those who have given up on doing things their way. And they've surrendered completely to Christ's way. There is no other way. Frank Sinatra, Elvis Presley notwithstanding, there is no heaven for people who do it their way. We're conquerors through Christ who loved us. He conquered and he arose and he is the only re reason that we live. So heaven is a place for those that are more than conquerors. In Christ, they're conquerors in him. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. 1 Corinthians 15:57 but thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So overcomers are those who receive the reward of heaven because they did it his way. Now, very quickly, we're going to look at that. What is his way? What does that mean? They did it his way. Well, notice first that overcomers seek righteousness. Overcomers don't live apart from the goodness of Christ. How many countless times have we heard Hollywood performers applaud other performers, other actors, and talk about how they're sure that they're going to be in heaven. They announce what good people they are, and they're going to be in heaven. And I just wonder, how did the ungodliness of Hollywood or, or the filthiness of the pop singers that we hear today, how did that suddenly become the or over time, maybe not suddenly, but that's become the standard of right for our children. Heaven is as far away from that as the east is from the west. Peter said, nevertheless, we according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, what? Wherein dwelleth righteousness. So overcomers, those that are in heaven, are those who seek Christ's righteousness. Now look at the end of verse number 6. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. Well, who, who are those that thirst after the water of life? That's a very interesting metaphor that we find in Scripture. Many times we find it in Scripture. And it's a term for the righteousness of Christ. That those who are seeking Christ's righteousness are said to be hungering and thirsting for it. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. For they shall be filled. 
So the one who thirsts after righteousness realizes he has none of his own. That's the reason that he's searching for it. He seeks for it because he doesn't have any. This is that person, again, who's poor in spirit, who realizes his spiritual bankruptcy. He tried his own way, and yet he found it to be just like the preacher in Ecclesiastes who said, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. He seeks one way to be right with God, and that is to abandon all that he is and to surrender to God's ways. Now, if God doesn't tolerate sinful ways, then those that are seeking righteousness neither tolerate sinful ways. There is a righteousness that comes by faith, and that righteousness by faith cleanses us in the blood of Jesus Christ from all of our sins. Now, there are two very important words in this text. God says, I will give. You might want to underline I. And then the next word to underline is freely. I give freely. Salvation is initiated by God. Nobody can give it but Him. You can't do it. God never said to any person, now here's how this thing's going to work. You do your part, and I'll do my part. Have you ever heard that before? You do your part, and I'll do my part, and that's the way that people think they're going to get to heaven. Did you know that you don't have a part? The only part that you had was in the crucifixion of Christ. Your sins and my sins put Jesus Christ on the cross, and he died because of our sins. That's our part. And then he arose from the grave, and we had no part in that. We had no ability to help him arise from the grave. That's by the power of God. Our contribution is his death. And then he died and he came out of that grave. He arose and he conquered death. And then by his marvelous grace, he repays the favor that we did of crucifying him by doing what? Offering us life. Offering it to us freely. Freely he gives. You don't have a part in that. God gives eternal life in only God. And so you see, the river of life is a metaphor for eternal life in heaven, that there is a river of life that is there. But there's also a double entendre in this saying. This is what Jesus said to the woman at the well. If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. In verse 13, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Did you know the Old Testament prepared us for that New Testament saying? We find it in Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters... And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And so he who overcomes is that one who is seeking Christ's righteousness. He goes to the cross, and there he sees Jesus bleeding and dying for him. He's like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress who approaches the cross, and there the burden of his sins fall off his back, and it rolls away. And then he becomes a conqueror, and he lives in the conquering power of Christ's death over every sin. He lives in the defeat of death and hell and of the cross, and at the empty tomb, that burden of his heart rolls into that tomb, and there it stays. When Jesus arises from the grave, he comes out without that burden. And so he took our sins, and he conquered them, 
And He's the one who makes us fit for heaven when we trust Him. And so I want you to see that, that faith in Christ is the victory that overcomes the world, and there is no other way. Christ died, and He arose again. Faith in Him is nikao. It's to be a conqueror, a conqueror who inherits the kingdom of heaven. I have so much more that I'd like to talk to you about today. The resurrection of Christ is so important to the Christian faith. Amazingly, I was reading uh, just this past week about a man who said he's a Christian, and he wrote this. He said, The cross of Christ is what is important for our salvation, and the resurrection has no benefit. It's not the resurrection. And I would beg to differ with that. Without the resurrection, the cross is meaningless. The resurrection is what gives us life. Remember old Job said, In my flesh I shall see God. And how would he see God unless there is a resurrection? Unless he is resurrected as Christ was resurrected. Now the second point we'll make quickly and then we'll get you out of here today. Secondly, overcomers receive the spoils. Like victors in the battle... Overcomers receive the spoils of the victory. Second Timothy chapter 4, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Now there the Apostle Paul was speaking of his impending death, and he was ready to go. The overcomer is the one who has put in his time in this life serving Christ. He fights the fight of faith, and in the end, God never forgets anything that's been done for him. Jesus said that even a cup of cold water given in the name of a disciple receives a reward. I wish I had time to give this all to you, but I don't, so let me squeeze in just a little here. That God says an overcomer will inherit all things. The new heaven and the new earth are the prized possession of believers. All things belong to believers. And amazingly, the Scripture says that when we trust Christ, we become sons of God. We become joint heirs with Christ. In Romans, the Spirit beareth witness with our spirit, that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. And when you get to heaven, you're not a visitor paying rent on a vacation home. You're not paying rent on something that you don't own, and I want you to get that. Everything in heaven is yours. Everything that Christ owns is yours because you're a joint heir with him. And when you get into heaven, you'll claim that inheritance and you'll walk into heaven not as a stranger, but as someone who has every right to be there because that place is yours. Heaven is yours. Which begs the question if heaven is yours, what are you doing spending all the time, all of your time, with things that are here? Why are you devoting all of your time to what takes place in this world and not giving attention to what takes place in the other world? Why are we constantly laying up treasures here rather than laying up treasures in heaven? How important is this verse in Colossians 3? If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth 
on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. Jesus said, we lay up treasures in heaven. And there he says, nothing corrupts, no one can steal it. The spoils are the possession of everything that's in the new heaven and the new earth. And that means Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem with its foundations of precious stones, with the gates of pearl, the streets of gold, the river of life. All of it is yours. That's the result of Christian warfare. And so the Word of God tells us that service to Christ will bring eternal rewards. Surrendering to the world by abandoning your duty for Christ brings you nothing but loss. You and I don't need the things that we have in this world. What will all the years of self-indulgence bring us? Nothing. There is no lasting value in that. Why exchange that for eternity and the years of possessions of things in heaven? Now, do you realize that every one of John's readers were the same as you? They had cares. They had sorrows. They had their heartaches. They had sickness and death. Their lives were full of disappointments. They saw it all. And the remedy for them was to have the apostle tell them about heaven. Maybe you're miserable today because you just don't think about heaven. Maybe you have no hope of heaven. You, you haven't laid up any treasure there. You haven't really trusted in Christ, so you have no, you have no hope there. Well, God, says, God says it's not worth holding on to the things that you have here. You're not going to miss anything. Not a thing. You're not going to miss anything. God knows that that's true. Christ promised that he would take us to heaven. He arose to give you hope of that glorious place. And so when you think about Resurrection Sunday, think about Easter, then think about being raised, Christ being raised to return to the Father, and there he's preparing a place for those who trust him. And the victory is ours by faith in Him. And through faith in Him, we receive all the spoils of the victory that He won over death. You helped to crucify Him, but you did not help to raise Him. You had a part in the cross, but not in the resurrection. But what I'm telling you today is that you can have a part in the resurrection. And you can have the very best part, and that's life in heaven with Jesus Christ. So thank God that he arose, and by faith in him, you can conquer death. There's no need to fear death. You will arise to be with Jesus in that new home of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the resurrection. What a blessed privilege that we have to meet and talk about this blessed event and all the guarantees and benefits that we receive from it. Lord, we thank you for those who've come today to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And I do pray, Lord, that everyone that's here knows you as Savior. I hope, Lord, that things that I've said today are just reminders because everyone here has that hope in their heart. They have that hope and they know that when they die, they are going to heaven. That's the best possible thing that we could say about this congregation this morning. Lord, if things are the way they usually are, we have people here that have never placed their hope and their confidence in you. They don't know about salvation in you. They've trusted many other things. They're seeking other ways rather than the righteousness of Jesus Christ to save them. Maybe there are some who are looking at a good life that they've lived and 
They've counted up all the things, and they have a ledger sheet where they talk about all the good things that they did. Lord, we know it's not the good things that we do. It's the very best thing that Christ did, that He gave His life to pay for our sins, to give us the perfection that we need, and that's the only perfection by which we shall see God. So, Lord, if there are any of those here today, any of those kinds of people, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open up their hearts to receive the true message of Jesus Christ and to have the hope of eternal life in him. And then, Lord, we know there's another category, a subcategory of those people, and those are people that are members of churches. And they show no evidence in their daily lives that they actually know you. They come to church on Christmas, on Easter, on special days. But the rest of their lives, they show no evidence at all of knowing you. And yet, that's what the Word of God says that we must have in order to have confidence and assurance of our faith that there is a life that is lived for you. And so, Lord, we pray for those who maybe have a false hope because at one time, one day, they said that they believe, but then they haven't shown any evidence of it. Lord, I pray you'd speak to their hearts today. Make them understand that that when God saves people, He changes people. He makes them new. He makes them different. And the difference is a life that's yielded in service to Jesus Christ. Speak to our hearts today, Lord. Thank you for the resurrection of Christ. In Him, we have hope of heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. What a great song. You probably think, well, we could have just sung that and done away with the message. And we'd had the whole message we needed right there. In Christ alone, my hope is found. I do hope that you've found your hope in Christ. He's the only one who can save you. I encourage you to trust him today. If you have any questions about what we preach today, and some of it, quite frankly, is controversial in Christian churches. You don't hear a lot about what I've said about only one way to heaven. That's one of the great fallacies that's being taught in Christian churches today. That there are many ways to go, many paths to God. When the Bible very clearly says, Jesus himself said, God the Father said, There is no way. I am God. There is none else. I've only done what I'm supposed to do. Preach the Bible to you. Don't want to preach my opinions. Don't want to preach... What I think, I want to preach to you what God said. That's all that matters, the authority of the Word of God. So I encourage you today, if you don't know Christ, trust Him. We have folks in the back that will be happy to talk to you about it today. If you have questions, if you want to know what Briam Baptist believes, about what it takes to be a member in Briam Baptist Church, we're happy to talk about that. And if you found something here that interests you and a place that you want to serve God, I will tell you this, that Briam Baptist Church needs people that are willing to do ministry and serve the Lord and help to win this community to Jesus Christ. If you want to do that, this is a good place for you. And then, um, as we leave today, any questions that you have, you need to talk to me or someone else, we're happy to do this. See the men in the back or any member of Brian Baptist Church is willing to help you. We do invite you to come back next Sunday. We preach the Word of God again, and we hope that we'll see you then. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, 
you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.